session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Rolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is... A Therapeutic Journey by Alan de Baton, Lessons from the School of Life. And I really like uh, the School of Life, and you, I would highly recommend seeing some of Alan de Baton's talks online. He's very entertaining, but very insightful at the same time. And so saw he had a new book out and um, wanted to check it out. So looking forward to reading that, A Therapeutic Journey by Alan de Baton. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Words Can Change Your Brain by Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. Words Can Change Your Brain, 12 Conversation Strategies to Build Trust, Resolve Conflict, and Increase Intimacy. So the title, uh, Words Can Change Your Brain, I completely agree with, and that definitely drew me to the book. Um... And the book revolves around a type of communication or strategies, as it says, these 12 conversation strategies that they call compassionate communication, which is, um, as the, the word compassion would imply, a more kind way to communicate, not just kind as trying to be nice. I, You've actually probably heard me talk about the distinction of kind and nice, but kind as in genuinely caring about your partner, whoever it is you're talking with, whether it is a romantic partner or a negotiation, even adversary, how can you bring more compassionate strategies into that communication, into that conversation? And I I like the idea of thinking about the ways that we talk and communicate because most of what we generally do doesn't go very well. We aren't very good at expressing ourselves clearly, and we aren't very good at listening to our partners, and we don't create good conversations where there isn't back and forth, mutual understanding. We clarify what it is we're even trying to do, what we want, and usually the conversations don't go very well. So just as an approach, I think it's important to think about this and to recognize that Um, We all have communication styles and ways of doing things, and certainly some of the things we do are good, but also there's things that we likely do that are not good. And actually, before I get into the 12 strategies, I liked at the end of the book, they had this suggestion of asking someone that you care about, what's something you wish I did differently in how I communicate? I'm paraphrasing, but that was essentially what they said, and I think that is a a vulnerable question, but an important one to ask a loved one. What is it about the way that I communicate with you that you don't like? You might also include what you like, but it could be very important to give them an opportunity to show them you genuinely want this feedback. How how can I communicate better with you? 
And I'm sure if they are being genuine with you, they'll have something to say because we all can improve in how we communicate. And often we are um, unhappy or at least could be happier with how a loved one communicates with us. So let me tell you about these 12 uh, components of compassionate communication. So the first six, they say, are preparatory, meaning that you do them before the conversation begins. And in general, there are some key themes that come up throughout the whole strategy or the whole approach, which I'll talk about. So the first one is to relax. That's component number one. And so before having an important conversation, they recommend doing some kind of relaxation technique. Um, could be a type of brief meditation, focusing on your breathing. They have uh, one where they talk about yawning a few times and how that relaxes you and trying to relax your muscles a little bit. But it's important to get your body relaxed. And I think that that is actually a very important one because if your body is tense, to begin with, and you're going to a conversation that might be a little bit difficult, you are likely going to start the conversation tense. You are um, going to be more likely to respond in a tense way and feel that you're more upset or angry because of that. And so if we relax, that can be helpful to get us in the right state of mind, get our body in the right state of body. I don't know if that makes sense, but to get ourselves ready for that conversation. The second one related to that is to stay present. Um, you know, generally we aren't very present, most of us, but especially when we're having important conversations, we can get distracted and not pay attention, but we can also get overly focused on what we're saying or trying to win the argument and we can lose staying present with the person and in the moment with them. Component three is cultivate inner silence. And this is uh, related to meditation when we meditate and we slow down, we can pay attention to what's happening within us, a, a deeper voice rather than the mental chatter that is usually going nonstop in our heads. Meditation itself tries to slow down that mental chatter or see if we can listen to what's underneath that mental chatter. And to me, this also is important when we talk about cultivating inner silence. When we think of listening in a conversation of course we want to pay ample attention to our speaking partner and listen to them but if we're having a a very open and genuine conversation and we want to be attuned with our partner we also have to be listening to ourselves listening to what is coming up for me how am i feeling what am i thinking and so it doesn't mean we stop listening to them but trying to stay present and stay in the moment where you're listening to them but also making sure you listen to yourself as well and so if we cultivate inner si uh, silence this third component of compassionate communication we can then pay attention to what's going on within us observe ourselves more closely and more directly which will allow for a more open genuine and possibly connecting type of conversation the fourth component is to increase positivity. And so here um, they cite some of the research from even John Gottman, who does his research on marriages, which shows that in general, you want to have at least five positive things or statements for every one negative one, so a five to one ratio. And so they share some research showing that when the number gets below three, that's when you're in trouble, not just in a marriage, but in a conversation. So 
they they say that you want to before even the conversation begins increase positivity or keep that in mind the fifth one is to reflect on your deepest values and so here and as I, I can mention here one of the themes that comes up throughout and you'll see it even more directly in some of the more um, directive ways of how you communicate is slowing down and so you know relaxing staying present listening to that inner voice but here reflecting on your deepest values what is it that really matters to you in general what is it that really matters to you in this conversation what do you value about this person about your relationship with them um, and you know I th- think this is a good one I wouldn't call it a deepest value but at times with families when I'm working with them you know you'll have let's say a parent and a teenager and they're fighting about something but often I think it could be important to slow down and say, okay, well, what is it that we disagree about or what is it we're agreeing about? And I might touch on this later uh, because often we see that there's a lot we agree on or two parents who are raising their child and might have differing views of parenting styles of what's permissive versus what's too strict. And we, sh- we have to just assume that no matter who we marry, we're not going to be exactly on the same page to begin with because we'll have our own experiences in childhood and experiences beyond that that will affect what we consider the right way to parent. And so it could be good to remember, okay, we're both caring about our children. We're loving our kids and we're trying to do what's best for them. So we're, we might disagree on how to do that, but our value here is the same. Our What's motivating us is the same as we want what's best for our kids, to love our kids and to help them grow and to help them become the best they can be. So it can be important to remember that we are wanting the same things, even if we have different opinions about what is the best way to get there. And the sixth one is they actually say to access a pleasant memory. So they recommend thinking about something pleasant, a time where you felt really warm and connected and loved, and that that will put you in a better frame of mind to go into the conversation. So those first six are all in preparation for the conversation. The seventh one is one that's really an ongoing part of the the process once you start the conversation, which is to observe nonverbal cues. So, you know, when we talk about listening, oftentimes people think, well, I heard what the person said. And that's definitely a, a big part of it, of course, to hear the words that the person is saying. But it's also important to pay attention to all the nonverbal cues, starting with even tone of voice and the speed and pressure of how they say what they say, but also facial expressions and um, hand gestures, and they even talk about micro expressions. So really paying close attention to the individual. So if you just heard the words, that's not enough to say that you really are listening to someone. You really want to take them all in completely. And so those preparatory types of uh, strategies they mentioned, staying present, relaxing, um, listening to that, creating that inner silence, all these things can help you to pay more attention and to observe those nonverbal cues. These last five components of compassionate communication are more about how you are actually going to start to communicate with the person you are talking to. The eighth one is to express appreciation. So this is to say something that you genuinely appreciate about the person you are talking to. And they do, throughout the book, mention whatever you're doing here has to be genuine. Because if you start with a compliment or some kind of appreciation and it just doesn't feel right, I don't 
think that would be the right thing to do. So you have to feel genuine, not feel forced that, okay, I have to start with a compliment or something I appreciate about the person because that's step eight here. Uh, if it's not the right thing to do, and that's actually when they talk about listening to that inner voice, it'll tell you what feels right or what isn't right to do in that moment. So they say to express appreciation. And then there's three things about how to speak. The first one is to speak warmly. So have a compassionate and kind tone of voice and way of expressing yourself. So to make sure that you speak warmly. The next one is to speak slowly. And I think I maybe slowed down as I got to some of these, but they emphasize how important it is to speak slower than you might think is the right speed and how we often speak too fast it could actually be coming from anxiety, trying to fill the space, trying to make sure we get our point across or we win the argument, but we do much better if we slow down. And they even share examples of people who said that because the person speaks so fast, they actually get anxious listening to the other person. And so if we speak more slowly, we generally will have a better conversation with whoever it is we're speaking with. The next one is to speak briefly. And so they actually recommend to speak less than 30 seconds at a time, each person. And in some ways, that's not a lot, but it could be a good amount. And they share how even you can do shorter than that, just having one or two sentences back and forth and really making sure you're understanding each other, that you don't let things get off the rails too much. But they encourage speaking less than 30 seconds at a time uh, because it's hard for the other person to pay attention to longer than that as I speak at you for 15 minutes straight. But yes, they are saying that when you're having a conversation that you don't want to speak more than 30 seconds at a time to make sure that your partner and you both can go back and forth and really exchange information and mutual understanding rather than having one person speak at the other person. And the 12th one, which in some ways encapsulates earlier components, is to listen deeply. So again, not just... Um, paying attention to the words, paying attention to all the nonverbal cues as well, but really sharing uh, and giving your full attention to the person that you are talking to. So those are the 12 components of compassionate communication, and they share some examples and samples of what it could look like in conversations and different scenarios where it's helped people to have better types of conversations. One critique I had or I experienced during the reading of the book was that it seemed that there was uh, this emphasis on positivity, uh, but sometimes I thought overly so, where there wasn't room for the negative emotions. And so often they would cite how what the negative feelings will do to you or the person that's listening to you. But uh, if we're having genuine conversations, and especially ones that are going to be difficult, they often will involve feelings that aren't so good or don't feel pleasant. And that's actually why it's important to work them out. And it is important as they are talking about relaxing and doing certain things before you enter the conversation. I think that is important because uh, even if something made you angry and you want to talk about it, it'll probably be best to wait till your anger has cooled off a bit or you've processed it a little, little bit before you jump into the conversation because then it will likely um, get to a very ugly place if you are very angry. So it'll be very important to process it a bit. It doesn't mean eliminate your anger or don't bring it into the conversation at all. 
but that if it is a bit even out of control within you or feels out of control and likely the conversation will get out of control. But I did feel this at times overemphasis on positivity and um, positive thinking and a removal at times of negative emotions from the conversation and communication, which I don't think is going to lead to genuine expressions and genuine conversations to resolve the more critical and important and serious issues that will likely come up. So they did. They didn't say that you can't have negative feelings, but there was this tone of the positivity and emphasizing how good it is to be positive and how it could change your uh, feelings and change all these things, which can have some validity. But um, to me, there was something missing in the more well balanced aspects of having the negative feelings as well. That they're going to be there; they're not going to go away. Nonetheless, uh, I think it is important, as I said, to consider how we communicate and the ways we can do better because we tend to find our style and think this is just me and this is who I am, but we all can improve on it. And so um, a book like this and the strategies it introduces, I think all of them um, will be helpful, or I should say they'll be helpful to almost everyone. Maybe you won't implement all of them, but out of the 12, I think many of them will would likely make all of us better communicators, uh, especially some of those things about how we speak. That was um, interesting for me. Maybe as someone who speaks at length and speaks fast, I took those to heart. Um, Maybe I'll speak at the same speed on the show, but when I'm talking to others, I'll be mindful of that uh, in general. But nonetheless, coming back to the book, Words Can Change Your Brain, 12 Conversation Strategies to Build Trust, Resolve Conflict, and Increase Intimacy by Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. In the first segment, I was talking about the book Words Can Change Your Brain by Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. And as I mentioned in the first segment, I think it's so important for us to, as all things, become aware of our personal communication styles, um, the ways that we talk. It could be related to things like if you're introverted or extroverted, the way you, how expressive you are, uh, how... Um, much you listen and how much you give and take in a conversation, how assertive, passive, or aggressive you might be, and a host of other aspects that make up your communication style and how it is that you communicate. Because what, what we often see is that partners in a relationship will bring their own communication styles into a marriage, and because of the differences, they will have issues in their communication. So... I know it's a very common thing, one of those things that you really can say about any relationship, oh, we need to communicate better. And it's probably true, but what does communicate better mean? It can mean a lot of different things. And it's not just about the communication, something that is important to recognize is the quality and the feeling in the relationship is more important than communication techniques. So even if a therapist teaches you, let's say to say, I say, uh, I, uh, I feel statements, so I statements. If you have a lot of mistrust and anger and animosity in a relationship, it doesn't mean using these statements is going to fix things or make communication go well. If there is strong negative feelings in a relationship, 
communication techniques won't get you really very far, probably anywhere. The only thing they actually might help you do, which could be good, is to recognize a relationship is not going to work more clearly and more quickly. But you can't fix a relationship just by making certain techniques added to the relationship or saying certain things. Now, through talking and communicating, you can work through those feelings. But we have to recognize that if we don't get to those feelings that are at the root, we're not going to just automatically now communicate better and have a good relationship. But going back to having different communication styles, one, for example, that I notice it's not just about volume, but related to volume, openness to conflict. So some people can come from families that had lots of arguments openly. And actually, sometimes they would have lots of arguments, but they weren't uh, bad things in the sense that they would have them about many different topics, but they wouldn't get hateful or hurtful. The volume might go up or they might disagree and voice it very clearly, but all would be well by the end of it. And there are other families where that doesn't happen at all, where no one really disagrees. But when they did, it was really bad and scary. And the family members, especially the kids, would be very scared. And so that person comes into a relationship and can think that if if voices get raised, things are really, really bad or all hell is about to break loose. Whereas the other person might feel like, oh, this is just the way we talk. And so uh, you've probably met people that have these different types of styles, but I've also seen it in therapy where you have a couple where they will come into the session and say, one of them will say, oh, we had a really bad fight the other day. And the other one's like, wait, wait, when? And they'll say, oh, yeah, on Friday night. And the person says, oh, that wasn't a really bad fight. We were just, you know, talking about this, or I got upset that you did this thing. And so we can see that there is a difference in how they interpret the same conversation, the same interaction, where one person will take it as this horrible fight and the other person just thinks we just talked about things. And so this relates to what they experienced in their families and the openness to conflict. I actually think being more open to conflict is a good thing. Um, That sounds negative when we talk about conflict, but when we're talking here about conflict, it's not to fight in a negative way, but making it okay to disagree and to eventually agree to disagree, but first to disagree, that you can think one thing, I can think something else, and we can talk about it. And disagreeing doesn't mean something really bad. Disagreeing doesn't mean we dislike each other or we're not close with each other. It just means that we disagree. I think this, you think this. I feel that way, you feel that way. I have this preference, you have that preference. But unfortunately, in a lot of families, we are taught that disagreement and conflict is a really bad thing. So we shouldn't disagree. We shouldn't have any type of arguments. You shouldn't voice a concern or a complaint. We should just keep everything good and peaceful and calm. And so in that kind of a family, the the children in that family will learn that disagreeing is a bad thing. And unfortunately, what you'll likely teach those children is that even if you disagree, even if you have a different opinion or something bothers you or upsets you, it's better if you just swallow that and don't bring it up. Keeping the peace is more important than keeping things open. Keeping things calm is better than sharing what you really feel or what you really think. And also there is this added part where it makes it seem that conflict is a very scary thing. If we argue, I don't know what's going to happen. It could be very scary. It could be uh, loud and aggressive and maybe even violent. 
And there could be this underlying fear that it could also end the relationship. So it's a threat to the relationship. So we're teaching our children that conflict is something very scary. And so I'm not saying here at all that having yelling matches is a good thing when I say embracing conflict or um, getting, you know, saying disrespectful things or mean things. Not at all. It's about allowing the space to disagree and to share that, but with respect the whole time, without getting aggressive or threatening one another or making the other one try to try to make them feel bad, but that we can disagree. That is totally okay and totally acceptable. Actually, often in a dependent family, one of the aspects of dependency is that we have to be the same. We should be the same. So even you'll see this where sometimes if like a mother, daughter, it could be father, son, father, daughter, father, son, whatever the dynamic, but sometimes with same sex parents, you might see it more same sex parent and child that I like this. Don't you like this? And when the other person, I don't know if I like it, you'll see this like feeling of almost fear, but anxiety of, I thought we both liked that. And there's the sense that not only can we not disagree, we can't even like different things or not like the same thing, because there's a feeling that if we are different, that space means a threat to the relationship. And so dependency in general has that theme that we're going to stay close and so enmeshed and entwined with each other. There isn't even a possibility of separation, and that can give a sense of calm. It isn't the healthiest place we can be for a relationship. It doesn't allow for both people to be their own selves and to have their own experience, but it is a reaction to that fear of abandonment, that fear of loss, that if we stay so interconnected in that way and so dependent on one another and so stuck and attached in this way, I never have to feel that threat of loss, of losing you. But we lose something, which is our sense of self when we do that, our possibility to have our own life and our own experience. So as a parent, you also have to be very mindful of this, of how okay am I with my child disagreeing with me, with being different from me, and am I creating a type of dependent dynamic with them where we have to agree and have everything be the same or else I'm going to be afraid to lose them? The healthiest relationships are, of course, where both people can be themselves and be comfortable to share whatever it is they're say- thinking and feeling in that moment. Even when I say themselves, doesn't mean it's something static, but to be genuine in that moment. And when the differences arise, it isn't seen as a threat. It's just seen as, well, we're two human beings, two different people. So of course, we're not going to be the same. But not being the same doesn't mean we can't love each other or that the relationship is threatened or will end. It's just the part of a relationship. And actually, even it can make it quite nice to have some differences or things that we can talk about or see from different perspectives or teach one another about the world or about things that we enjoy that the other person might not really care for. But will learn through us about. So openness to conflict is a very important quality and one that I'm talking about as parents and in your families, but as an individual, important for you to look at because it'll have an impact in how you approach all your relationships. Um, But especially the closer the relationship is, the more it will impact how okay are you to share something that the other person might not like, might not be okay with. And so coming back to this theme of a partner entering a relationship or partners entering a relationship, it's something that you want to talk about. You know, it's 
almost a meta type of thing. You're going to communicate about how you communicate, but it's a very important thing to recognize that what you might think is acceptable might not be to your partner and vice versa, or what you might think is a good amount of communicating might not be enough for your partner or the right way to communicate. Someone might want just verbal communication. Someone else might want to do activities together or um, send messages to each other. Especially in today's day and age, there's differences in people who like texting versus calling versus video calling versus in person. Of course, in person is going to be the most intimate, but it might not always be possible. But it could be even important to talk about those things. And so you'll sometimes see couples where one of them loves to text and the other one hates texting. And so they try to reconcile that. doesn't mean either one of you is right or wrong, but it's important to be aware of these differences because they can lead to conflict. We talk about the love languages, but we also have language languages or communication types that we will prefer and not prefer. And it's important to be aware of those. Or, for example, having eye contact while you're talking. Overall, I'd say that's a more intimate thing to do, but some people have a harder time of that than others. doesn't mean that they don't love their partner or are not comfortable with them. It could be related to some uh, themes of comfort with intimacy, so that's definitely there. I'm not saying don't look at that, but it could be a difference of styles. And so you maybe have experienced this, that you have a conversation face-to-face that goes a certain way, but you go for a walk with the person And a different type of conversation might open up. I'm sure some of it is also from just being active and the way that moving your body gets the blood flowing and that could change your mood and what you might be open to. But it's also this sense of you're not really looking at each other. Now, you might every so often turn and look at one another, but generally you're going to be facing forward or looking around. So there isn't this direct eye contact. Similar to when you're driving, where especially hopefully the driver um, is not looking at you directly, even You know, if I'm usually driving with someone and they're driving and we're talking, I try not to make direct eye contact with them because it encourages them to look at you and make that direct eye contact back. Uh, And that can obviously be dangerous as they take their eyes off the road. So I'll kind of look forward generally, even if I'm really into the conversation, just to to not encourage them to, to look over. But you'll find sometimes when you're driving with someone, there is the sense of that being occupied with something else, not having that direct eye contact can actually allow for sometimes more intimate conversations to happen or someone to share something they haven't shared before. So there isn't an exact right style that you always have to talk. I think you want to make sure that both people feel good about the way you're talking. Often I've seen people have a conversation and for one person it's really important and the other person is on their phone or distracted or doing something and that person gets upset. So it can be important to express that to your partner that you know, in general we would hopefully give our attention to one another, but this is a really important conversation for me. I'd really like your undivided attention. So maybe that can't even be right now, but let me know when that that can be. And as I conclude this segment, that's another important thing that often happens is that we at times begin a conversation when the other person is not ready for it. And if it's an important one, we do want to be mindful of that fact that If it's important, we have to make sure, although we might be now ready, you've gotten yourself in the right headspace to talk about it, or maybe you've wanted to talk about it for a while, so you feel like you can't wait any longer. But if you're expecting your partner to be in that same headspace or to be ready for that type of conversation, you really have to check in with them and to make sure they're ready to go there. And if they're not, you can say, okay, and you you can ask for a time. So it's not just that they're avoiding you, but 
to recognize that if you just ambush them with this conversation, they won't be ready for it and likely won't go well. They might even respond with anger or frustration, or you might get angry at their lack of focus. And because of that, it goes really wrong because of the setup rather than what actually the conversation could be. So we've probably all been there. You start a conversation with someone, they're not ready for it and they're set right headspace and you see it doesn't go well and you, you get frustrated. But it's important to make sure the context is right, that you're both in the right and same type of headspace before you have a important conversation. In the last segment, I'm going to talk a bit more about conflict and arguments and um, something I think is really important, making sure that you're on the same page. Now, you might not agree. Obviously, that's why you're arguing, but about what you're even arguing about. So we'll talk about that after the break. We'll be right back. So in the last segment, I'm going to talk about arguments, more fun topics. And, um, you know, when we look at relationships, there's this cliche saying, but a very important one, that it's not if you fight, it's how you fight. That if you are going to have a healthy relationship, an open relationship, there has to be arguments and disagreements. If we even look at conflict at its basis, it is when, it could be groups, but let's just look at individuals. Two individuals have some kind of difference in opinion, in want, in desire. Something is different, and because of that, there is a conflict now. We have to choose what to do. We have two pref different preferences of where to eat. One wants a hamburger, one wants sushi. So how do we figure out how to find the restaurant or the type of food we're going to have? That's obviously a more minor one, but things like that come up. But if we have a difference in how we see things, how we feel about things, things that we want, this is going to lead to conflict. And so that word conflict, like any word, has emotional connotations for us. And we tend to think of it so negatively, but it doesn't have to be an emotionally intense thing. Even something minor can be a conflict. And so we have to just assume or have as an expectation that any two people won't always want, feel, have the desire for the same thing in the same way at the same time. That's just not possible. So if we're going to have a uh, genuine relationship, we have to just expect this is inevitable. There will be times where we will have a difference that comes up. So now when those differences come up, as they inevitably will, how are we going to deal with them? So keep that in mind. I think sometimes there's this thought that if you don't fight, that's good. And as is the case with any of these topics I'm bringing up, it doesn't mean all fights are good. So if you're being mean and disrespectful to each other and or conflict is coming up all the time, it's a constant in your relationship, that's not good or healthy. But the goal shouldn't be to completely eliminate conflict, that it's going to disappear from your relationship. So if we're going to have conflict, it's about how we deal with our conflict. Now, one, as I mentioned in the last segment about defining the conflict, this might seem um, strange. It's like, well, we're fighting. We must be upset about something or know what we're fighting about. But I've observed so many times that you'll see two people, especially in, in debates even more, um, that they are 
seemingly having a debate or argument, but they actually are not clear on what they are arguing about. And so often they're saying two things, talking past each other. It's like they're having two separate conversations. But because of that, it could feel like they're disagreeing and they are um, not understood by the other person. And so the conflict will escalate, even though it's not clear even what they're arguing about. So, for example, one person might say, today is Thursday. And the other person says, no, it's December 14th. And the first one, no, it's Thursday. And the person says, it's December 14th. Well, the truth is, it could be both of those things. They both can be true. And they're both saying something that they feel is true, or maybe they feel is important in that moment. But they're not actually disagreeing about anything. But they might go on and on like this because it seems like they're saying two different things. They're saying two different things, but they both happen to be true, and they don't actually contradict what the other person is saying. So it can actually be very important to slow down a bit and say, what is it that we're disagreeing on? Which also could include, what are we in agreement about? Okay, we agree on this, but the part we disagree on is this. Okay, now we can have this conversation. So for example, to make a more concrete one, likely you won't be arguing about the date the way I was talking about there, but let's say one person says um, there's things that are wrong with education in college that need to be better. And then the other person is saying, but it's better to go to college than not to go to college. And then they keep going back and forth. But there are things that aren't good about the college system. And the person saying, but it's better to go to college than to not go to college. And so we could see that it could feel like a disagreement, but they aren't necessarily disagreeing at all. The first person is saying something about how college is, the system needs to be fixed or has issues that can make it better. And possibly that's making the second person think that they're saying, well, college is bad and no one should go, even though that first person isn't saying that. So now they keep emphasizing that, but it's still better to go to college than not to go to college. And so this argument could keep going back and forth. The first person says, yeah, but look at the, it's too expensive and blah, blah, blah. In America, you have to pay this and that's not right. And the other one's saying, but if you don't go to college, this happens versus if you go to college, you're Uh, expected income is at this level. And so they could be going back and forth, thinking they're giving strong arguments to support their claim, which they might be, but their claim is not something that the other person is actually clearly disputing or against. And so they go back and forth. And maybe this seems like it wouldn't actually happen in real life, but I can assure you, you've been in this type of argument yourself and you've likely observed many of them yourself too, that you've seen people having it. And you maybe didn't realize it because people could get very heated. And it's understandable that they will get heated because they're never going to get to an agreement when you're arguing about two different things at the same time. You can't come to an agreement because this person is trying to emphasize one point and the other one's trying to emphasize something else. There isn't even a possibility of convincing. Now, of course, when most people are debating and arguing, rarely do they change sides and change their opinions. But in this case, it's a virtual impossibility. If I'm saying it's December 14th and you're saying it's Thursday, we can't change our mind because it really is December 14th and it really is Thursday. So neither one of us is going to change our mind. We're just focusing on a different aspect of reality. It's kind of like that old um, adage of the scientists who discover an elephant in the dark. And one person says it's like a hose. The other one says it's like a tree. And because they're grabbing onto different parts of the elephant, they are sharing their truth and thinking they know the whole truth, but it's just different aspects of the true reality of the whole elephant. So here we're talking about the true reality of, let's say, the whole date or the whatever time it is. Um, Neither one of them is wrong, so they're never going to be 
convinced by the other one. So it can be very important to try to clarify what is it that we are arguing about. Even in a non-intellectual type of debate about something you're upset about. You know, one person might say, you said this thing I didn't like. And the other one says, oh, but, you know, um, I meant it as a joke. And so, and they can go back and forth. And the person might be saying, well, if even if it's a joke, it still hurts. And the first person saying, I didn't intend to hurt you. But really, it can be important to clarify, yeah, what is it that we are arguing about? Which might be, you intended it to be a joke, but it still hurt my feelings. And I want you to understand why that type of a joke doesn't feel like a joke to me. It actually hurts my feelings. And the other person might think, yeah, I'm, well, I want to share with you that I actually, you know, didn't see it that way or I felt this way. So I want you to, I didn't intend to hurt you with that joke. I really thought it was just playful and that we were going to have a good time together about it. And if we stop a little bit, slow down, um, we actually can figure that out. But if we just get sucked into the argument, we might find ourselves yelling at each other, but because we aren't even really having the same conversation, we're not in the same place. It's like you're uh, playing soccer, but you're on two different fields. You're never going to really get anywhere, figure things out. You're just going to be running around without getting any closer to one another. So it's very important to keep that in mind. And actually, you know, the, the book that I was sharing today, Words Can Change Your Mind, some of those Principles are very important for that, to speak warmly, to speak slowly, speak briefly. Those things can be very important. Of course, the last one, listen deeply. Are you actually listening to what your partner is saying, or are you just trying to make sure you make your point? And when I work with couples, sometimes you'll see them talk about arguments that they're having, and many therapists have observed this, and you've probably even felt this yourself, even if you're not a therapist, because it's so common, that You'll have the same argument with someone, especially when we're looking at romantic relationships where the same arguments tend to repeat themselves. And once that argument begins, it's like both people grab their scripts and they read from their script because it seems to go the same way every time. Okay, you complain about you know, me leaving a mess and then, okay, we start with, okay, I talk about you being controlling, you talk about how I don't care about what you think, and we say the same types of things back and forth, it escalates in a certain way. Neither one of us agrees with the other person. We think the other one's being either annoying or disrespectful or whatever those feelings are that we've already assumed the other person has for us or we feel about them. And then it just ends the same way again until the next time, until the lights go on and we grab our scripts again and have the same argument or conversation. Now, it can be important to recognize that there's likely something we're getting from reading that script, from being the one that, you know, is feeling controlled or from being the one that feels that they're being neglected or disrespected. There's likely something there. And that's why something about that script feels comfortable. One, it feels comfortable now in your relationship because you both know what to expect. And even though it's not a pleasant conversation, and maybe even especially because it's an unpleasant conversation, it's nice to know where it's going to go and how it's going to end. That can feel comforting. Um, but also because it comes from your past, it might be likely that these types of scripts come up or it feels comfortable for you. So that's something important to ask yourself. Why might this script, even though I don't like it, even though I can feel like I don't like what my partner is doing or how they're responding in this moment, why might this be my script or my drama that I'm playing out with my partner? And if we want to change the script or the way the ending of the script is, we're going to have to throw the script away and have the conversation differently. 
which means we do have to do some of these things like slow down, reflect, even communicate about what we're communicating about. So don't get caught up in the conversation. Take a step back. Like I was saying, what is it that we're arguing about? Or even we clear about what we are disagreeing or arguing about? Are we having the same conversation? Are we even on the same field? Are we playing two different games or playing it in two different places? In which case we'll never get to a resolution or things will never change. But we have to throw out our scripts and rather than uh, doing a scripted drama, do more of an improv where we are being in the moment and responding rather than going back to those old conversations we've already had that yes, it's comfortable that we know how they're going to end, but unfortunately we also know how they're going to end and it doesn't end well. We don't end in a resolution. So if you find that you're having the same conversations over and over again, the same arguments over and over again, it's important to, to take a step back, even bring it up with your partner. You know, I, I see we keep fighting about this. What is that all about? Let's try to figure out what's going on rather than getting caught up in the nitty gritty the next time it comes up. Let's think more globally about what it is that's happening. Where is it that we disagree? Where is it that we agree? What can we both do differently to hopefully find a resolution to what's happening here? And also, what might it be telling us both about our individual selves and why we're playing the roles we are in this drama together and what we can try to do to unlearn from that or create something different between us? All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Again, the book was Words Can Change Your Brain by Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.